welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sunday School by Chris Wiley on January 16th, Lord's Day Service. So I'm, I, I'm, uh, I've got a home in Connecticut. Uh, my wife and I lived in New England for about 30 years. Now we live in uh, Battleground, Washington, which is a really great name for a town, Battleground. There wasn't a battle. It was called off. <laughs> this is one of those things. You remember F Troop? Anybody here old enough to remember F Troop? I'm like the only person to remember it. Oh, we got the old guys, old folks. F Troop, is a, it, was, it was this... Uh, sitcom that was so politically incorrect that we'll never even see, you know, DVD status or anything. But it was about this uh, fort this uh, in the Old West that's made up entirely of klutzes, just clueless soldiers. And there was a Native American tribe that was uh, really into souvenirs, making souvenirs for the tourists, and they were, like, making out big time. They were, like, the, the kind of the forerunners of... Uh, the casino Indians, <laughs> you know, they were just doing great. And, uh, but in that, you have this uh, weird dynamic where um, there's this kind of just comedy of errors, and that's kind of what happened at Battleground. There was this uh, Native American community that uh, decided they were tired of being, you know, run by the American government, and they said, we're done, we're out of here, we're gone. And they said, no, you're not, come back. And they said, all right, we're going to battle. And they marked out the ground, the battleground. And then they called it off at the last minute and said, no, no, we don't want to fight. We'll come home. <laughs> and they came and they just resettled. And there was one uh, fatality, but it was an accident. So it's one of those things where it made me think of F Troop. This is, I mean, we didn't even mean to kill them. And we did. So anyway, that's, that's our place uh, on the West Coast. That's where we are. And they, do, they don't get snow. You know, that, it's kind of like here. You know, snow is like a reason to stay home and build snowmen and stuff like that. Where I, where I grew up in, well, this is another thing. I, I grew up in western Pennsylvania, right in the, right in the uh, wake of Lake Erie. So we had snow like you can't believe. I remember we lived in Buffalo. My father was fa on faculty at University of Buffalo. And I remember as a kid opening the door to go outside, and it was just white. The snow was that deep. I mean, it was <laughs> you had to dig out of the house. And uh, so there was a snow drift against the house. But anyway... You don't have to experience that. Well, it looks like folks have settled in. I can stop meandering. So this morning I want to talk about uh, the imagination. Now, I, I write a, uh, fiction, and I've got a young adult series, and the second book in that young, young adult series hopefully will be out uh, in maybe the next few months. Uh, I've written short stories, and I love fiction. I love reading it. And uh, so I want to talk a little bit about fiction and writing for the theological imagination. So what I'll do is I'll read something that hopefully will keep you uh, uh, enthralled or entertained or intrigued, and then we hopefully will have a little time to talk about it. So, for me it all began in our tiny living room in Olivet, Missouri. My father was reading The Lord of the Rings, and for some reason, he began to read aloud. 
That was out of character. I can't recall another time that he did that, but there I sat, 10 years old or so, and I heard the voice of Tolkien for the first time. We were in Moria and by a well, and two young hobbits wondered how deep it was. There was something inside me that wanted to know too. So there beneath the mountains, by a seemingly bottomless hole, we all sat, the hobbits and me. Then one of them dropped a stone and we all listened, waiting and waiting until finally sound. The stone woke something down below, which was a bad thing, but it also awoke something deep inside me, and that was a good thing. A year or two later, the longing in me that awoke in the minds of Moria brought Tolkien's book to mind, and I found a copy of The Hobbit in a school library, and I ate it in great gulps. Then I read The Lord of the Rings, and a few years later, I even read The Silmarillion. And ever since, those stories have been, for me, the standard of a good story. So this was about 1971, I think, when I was uh, listening to my father read that. Now, what makes a good story? There are two theories from two of the Inklings. The Inklings, if you're not already in the know, were a group of literary men, some of whom taught at Oxford, along with others who lived nearby. And C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien were the most prominent members of the group. C.S. Lewis observed that some stories elicit, quote, an inconsolable longing in the heart, for we know not what. His name for this longing was the German word Sehnsucht. This is another one of those things, spelling designed to make English-speaking people look silly. It doesn't actually spell out Sehnsucht. Uh, it's... Uh, uh, an entirely different spelling. So, but anyway, trust me, that's the way it's pronounced. Here's his description from the end of his book, The Pilgrim's Regress. That unnameable something, desire for which pierces like a rapier at the smell of a bonfire, the sound of wild ducks flying overhead, the title of The Well at the World's End, the opening lines of Kublai Khan, the morning cobwebs in late summer, and the noise of falling waves. If you're not familiar with Samuel Taylor Coleridge's Kublai Khan, here are some of those opening lines. And Xanadu did Kublai Khan a stately pleasure dome decree where Alf the sacred river ran through caverns measure less to man down to a sunless sea. So twice five miles of fertile ground with walls and towers were girdled round, and there were gardens bright with sinuous rills, where blossomed many an incense-bearing tree, and here were forests ancient as the hills, enfolding sunny spots of greenery. The closing lines of Kublai Khan are even more powerful for me. Here, here are those. That with music long and loud, I would build that dome in air, that sunny dome, those caves of ice, and all who heard should see them, be, see them there, and all should cry, beware, beware. His flashing eyes, his floating hair, weave a circle round him thrice, and close your eyes with holy dread, for he on honey dew hath fed, and drunk the milk of paradise. Now here's something from Tolkien 
that seems to be getting at the same thing, but from another angle. Quote, I coined the word catastrophe. The sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with a joy that brings tears, which I argued it is the highest function of fairy stories to produce. And I was there led to the view that it produces its peculiar effect because it is a sudden glimpse of truth. Your whole nature chained in material cause and effect the chain of death feels a sudden relief as if a major limb out of joint had suddenly snapped back. It perceives, if the story has literary truth on the second plane, that this is indeed how things really do work in the great world for which our nature is made. And I concluded by saying that the resurrection was the greatest eucatastrophe possible and the greatest fairy story and produces that essential emotion Christian joy, which produces tears because it is qualitatively so like sorrow, because it comes from those places where joy and sorrow are one, reconciled as selfishness and altruism are lost in love. Those are from his letters. Now here's what he's referring to in his great essay on fairy stories. But the consolation of fairy tales has another aspect than the imaginative satisfaction of ancient desires. Far more important is the consolation of the happy ending. Almost I would venture to assert that all complete fairy stories must have it. At least I would say that tragedy is the true form of drama, its highest function, but the opposite is true of fairy story. Since we do not appear to possess a word that expresses its opposite, I will call it eucatastrophe. The eucatastrophic, or <laughs> this is what you get with neologisms. The, the uh, eucatastrophic tale is the true form of fairy tale and its highest function. The consolation of fairy stories, the joy of the happy ending, or more correctly of the good catastrophe, the sudden joyous turn, for there is no true end to any fairy tale. You know how fairy tales end, right? And they all lived happily ever after, which means there's really no end. This joy, which is one of the things which fairy stories can produce supremely well, is not essentially escapist nor fugitive. It is fairy tale or other, uh, it, in its fairy tale or otherworldly setting, it is a sudden and miraculous grace never to be counted on to recur. It does not deny the existence of discatastrophe, of sorrow and failure. The possibilities of these is necessary to the joy of the deliverance. It derives in the face of much evidence, if you will, universal final defeat insofar as evangelism, evangelium, giving a fleeting glimpse of joy, joy beyond the walls of the world, poignant as grief. It is the mark of a good fairy story, of the higher or more complete kind, that however wild its events, however fantastic or terrible the adventures, it can give to a child or man that hears it when the turn comes, a catch of the breath, a beat and lifting of the heart, near to or indeed accompanied by tears, as keen as that given by any form of literary art 
and having a peculiar quality. Notice that both Lewis and Tolkien refer to a kind of piercing. I can't help but think they're getting at how these experiences breach a barrier that surrounds us, either raised as a defense against joy or erected brick by brick by the dull routines of daily life. But also, they're referring to, the, to endings here, both because Zehnsucht and Eucatastrophe promise a happy ending. While Lewis's Zehnsucht uh, includes ducks calling and waves crashing, it is the way literature brings it about that I'd like to consider. While the longing may be the same, in the case of literature, presumably, this is what the author set out to create. And Lewis and Tolkien succeeded in evoking these longings for many people. So how did they do it? They told stories, of course, imaginative ones, but for some people, an imaginative story is just a fancy tale or a fanciful tale, as when your grandmother said to you when, she, when you told a lie about how the cookies were eaten by the dog while the evidence was all over your chin, that's a very imaginative story. But good stories are not lies. When we speak of these stories, the ones that move us and send us searching for words to explain why, we mean our imaginations have been led to something that's truly real. Here, the imagination doesn't lead us astray. Instead, it is essential to receiving the truth. So how can the imagination lead us to truth? I've been reading Flannery O'Connor's essays lately. Any fans of Flannery O'Connor here? She's an acquired taste, I'm not surprised. Uh, since I write fiction, I'm interested in knowing, by the way, she, was she from Georgia? Yeah. Since I write fiction, I'm interested in knowing what she had to say about the craft. A collection entitled Mystery and Manners, which is an excellent book to get, included uh, an essay entitled The Nature and Aim of Fiction. I came across this passage and started underlining. The kind of vision the fiction writer needs to have or to develop in order to increase the meaning of his story is called anagogical vision. And that is the kind of vision that is able to see different levels of reality in one image or situation. The medieval commentators on scripture, <clears throat> pardon me, found three kinds of meaning in the literal level of the sacred text. So follow her here closely. There's the literal level, okay, and then there are three layers on top of that. So the literal level is not the end of the story. So um, one they called allegorical in which one fact pointed to another. One they called tropological, or moral, which had to do with what should be done. And one they called anagogical, which had to do with the divine life and our participation in it. Although this was the method uh, applied to exegesis, it is also an attitude toward all of creation and a way of reading nature which included most possibilities. And I think it is uh, this enlarged view 
of the human scene that the fiction writer has to cultivate if he is ever going to write stories that have any chance of becoming a permanent part of our literature. Now, O'Connor wrote anagogically, and that is why we still read her stories today. She's considered one of the great American authors. This is also the case with C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien, and this is what makes Milton's Paradise Lost and Dante's Divine Comedy what they are. And I even think that this is true for the more subtle and seemingly more realistic work of, say, Marilyn Robinson and Wendell Berry. But it's not true of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Because Bunyan worked solely on the allegorical plane. And it's not true for the slew of writers that you can find in the typical Christian bookstore. Their fiction is almost entirely moral in character, even when they're writing fantasy. Now, that's not to say that that's bad. It's not to say that, you know, what we have with Pilgrim's Progress is bad. It's just not what she's talking about. Unfortunately, this explains why so much religious fiction is flat. It works at only one level. This is also the case for much of the preaching <laughs> in our churches. It's flat, too. But like the hobbits in Bilbo's farewell speech, that's just how certain hobbits like it. Obvious, direct, plain, without subtlety or depth. And when I was in seminary, professors of hermeneutics actually encouraged this. They did their best to beat any inclination to think anagogically right out of us. They mocked medieval and patristic interpretations. And they would say that the only method for right-thinking people when it comes to interpreting scripture is the historical grammatical method. But O'Connor rebukes all of that when she says that the anagogical method of interpretation doesn't apply just to scripture. It applies to creation itself. Here's how it works. Since the world is created, it's plausible that the creator wishes to communicate with us through it. And since human beings can write with more than one level of meaning in mind, it's safe to infer that God can do likewise. This means creation possibly communicates at more than one level. There is a surface meeting made up of contingent facts and at least one other level of meeting beyond that. So we see it all the time in Scripture. There are many things in Scripture that make you know, no sense at the simply uh, literal level. But we un understand what's being said because we're actually kind of instinctively reading it at another level. People who fear that this might lead to subjective interpretations miss an important point. When an author writes at more than one level, he wants to be understood at more than one level. Just so you know, I try to write it more than one level. <laughs> so when people ask me, were you talking about this as well as that? Sometimes they're on it and sometimes they're not. If they are, I say, yeah, I think maybe you've gotten something there. If that's the case with God and creation, then people who read the world anagogically aren't making it up as they go along. Instead, they're trying to see things that exist, really exist beneath the surface, things that are really there. Now, good Protestants turn to Scripture to settle controversies, so how about it? Are anagogical readings scriptural? 
Yes. In fact, time and again, those who failed to see the anagogical or deeper meaning of something Jesus says are held up for ridicule. Think of statements like, unless you eat my flesh, you have no life in you. Or destroy this temple, and I will raise it in three days. Or you must be born again. Following each of those statements was this uh, incredulous statement, what could he possibly mean? <laughs> and then the narrator you know, would say, they were too dense to get his point, in effect. They didn't get it. Typically, in Reformed churches, we refer to this as topology, which is a good term. It's a biblical term. It comes from the book of Romans, chapter 4, where Adam is described as a type. As we see, as I noted, a type of Christ. But Hagar is also a type, as we see in Galatians. Why, even uh, husbands and wives, including those in this room, are types, as we see in Ephesians. See where I'm going with this? So it's scriptural, but how does anagogical writing work? Samuel Taylor Coleridge was particularly adept at writing in this mode. Coleridge, as I noted, was the author of Kubla Khan, but he was also the author of The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, and by the way, those are a couple of my favorite poems. And they are uh, because I see something in them, or better, through them, and what I see, I see through the imagination. Malcolm Geit published a wonderful book entitled Mariner, The Voyage or a Voyage with Samuel Taylor Coleridge. And in it, he explain, uh, explains the philosophy underlying Coleridge's method. Now, folks familiar with the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner? It's a pretty, pretty well-known poem, great poem. Um, I, I actually wrote uh, Geit, uh, we connected, and uh, I said, you know, you, you know, this is literary criticism that you've uh, got here, but you could actually make a movie out of this, of this book, the way, it, the way it functions, the way it works, because it keeps going back and forth between Coleridge's actual life, his story, and the rhyme of the ancient mariner. And, he's, and so you could kind of shift back and forth. So one of the things that Guide is saying is that there's something going on that is true that's reflected in both Coleridge's life and in rhyme of the ancient mariner. So here's uh, uh, Guide. Essential to Coleridge's understanding is the idea that everything in the world of appearances or phenomena reflects or corresponds with a greater and truer reality of which it is in some sense an image, echo, or shadow. The images and phenomena of this world could themselves be portals and windows into the radiance beyond them. The mental faculty needed to see this radiance is the imagination. Here's Guide again, followed by Coleridge in his own words. Coleridge traced the living stream of the imagination back up to what he believed to be its origin in the creative act of God's imagination, whereby the world came into being. As Coleridge would later put it, quote, the primary imagination, and imagination is all caps, I hold to be the, th be the living power and prime agent of all human perception. And as a repetition, in the finite mind of the eternal act of creation in the infinite I am. Now there's a lot going on there. That's a very deep uh, sentence. And uh, I won't repeat it, but if you want to read that, uh, I commend to you that book 
by Malcolm Geith. When a storyteller is really doing his job, people hear someone else's voice beneath his voice. It's the voice of the one who made everything with his word. As Geitz says at one point in Mariner, quote, the world, its lakes, its mountains, the shining stars are themselves words within an eternal language which God utters. Returning to the Inklings, particularly C.S. Lewis and the longing that pierces like a rapier, the thing longed for is the reality beneath the surface, what Tolkien called the happy ending, an ending so wonderful we haven't the words, and yet we do. If you can give your readers that, you've really given them something. If you've had an education in philosophy, you probably hear echoes of Platonism in all of this. Unless you think that Plato couldn't have anything to do with C.S. Lewis, allow me to conclude with a happy ending. This one from The Last Battle, the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia. Diggory, from The Magician's Nephew, is helping Peter, Edmund, and Lucy understand what they see. Quote, when Aslan said you could never go back to Narnia, he meant the Narnia you were thinking of. But that was not the real Narnia. That had a beginning and an end. It was only a shadow or a copy of the real Narnia, which has always been here and always will be here, just as your own world England and all is only a shadow or copy of something in Aslan's world. And of course, it is different, as different as a real thing is from a shadow or a waking life from a dream. His voice stirred everyone like a trumpet as he spoke these words, but when he added under his breath, it's all in Plato, all in Plato. Bless me, what do they teach them in these schools? The older ones laughed. Soon they were all running into the mountains, shouting further up and further in. For Lewis it was the mountains, for Tolkien it was the sea, and now I'm nearing the gray havens. Can you smell the salty air and hear the crashing sea? It's Aslan's country. It's the uttermost west. It's the milk of paradise. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.